0: 1st. Jerusalem, they wielded a great deal of influence and power. It's why, a couple years later, they were able to actually crucify Jesus, because Pilate was afraid of their influence and their power, and what they could not only inspire the people of Jerusalem to do, but even how that would affect uh, the Roman occupation of Jerusalem. And this man came to Jesus by night. Now, right away, what do you notice there? What does, what does it mean by night what is what, what is he not doing this during not out in the open right not during the day he comes by night and so as he approaches jesus he, he comes by night because there's a little bit of a controversy surrounding jesus he's just been doing all these signs he's been cleansing the temple there, there's a lot of hubbub about what is exactly going on here and so rather than maybe cause controversy in his own life he Decides, I'll rather secretly come visit him by night. And so Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And then verse 3, we read, Jesus answered him. That seem a little odd there. What does Nicodemus not do in verse 2, John 3, verse 2? Ask a question, right? How do you provide an answer to that which is not asked? Unless you know what's really at the heart of the situation. And to Nicodemus' credit here, he does give Jesus um, a a good deal of, of reverence at the beginning, saying, teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Now, there's two schools of thought on this. Either Nicodemus is part of that group that is already believing in Jesus, wholesale, he just isn't willing to admit it publicly yet. Or there's the reality that, uh, what is he trying to do by by addressing Jesus in this way? (laughs) Yeah, butter him up a little bit. Uh, I guess that probably determines if you're a glass half full or glass half empty sort of person, depending on how you look at that. But either which way... He simply addresses him as a teacher that has come from God. And Jesus answers him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this idea of sight in John is a a pretty big one. And we're going to see the, the motifs of light and darkness throughout this gospel. But even in the first couple chapters, where have we already seen it take place? In what, what sections have we seen John speak directly to light and to darkness and to sight and to blindness? Yeah, chapter 1, right? That's how he starts. That's how he starts his epistle, even. Um, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, there's something really interesting about that word, uh, Again. It kind of has a dual meaning, and there's all sorts of things that have been written on this that you could look up, or I could even provide you the resources if you'd like. I'm not going to go into them, but the two meanings that are possible from this are either unless one is born from above, or unless one is born again. And so uh, there have been numerous Christian scholars who have written uh, dissertations on just that single idea. Is this born from above, or born again? Again. Now, when you look at the verse immediately following it, what does Nicodemus seem to interpret it as? Again, yes. And so I would say, if you force me into a corner to pick, I actually think Jesus is probably using a little bit of a double meaning here, that both are true, which is why there's been so much, I think, debate about that, because both can be true. Both understandings can be true. Uh, And I have a feeling Jesus is wise enough to say something in which both understandings of that word in the original language could still be true, uh, and yet confusing to Nicodemus at the same time. Nicodemus does see it as a a second time. Uh, And so we read, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, it's a pretty understandable question. I mean, not to... We, we usually harp on the Pharisees, and, and they've brought some of that upon themselves. But at least in Nicodemus's case, I think he has a very reasonable um, question here. What are you talking about? What, what does it mean to be born again? And so Jesus answers him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, do you notice the... the Subtlety, the little change there. The first was what? In, in verse 3, one cannot see. And now in verse 5, one cannot enter. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is Jesus referring to, being born of water and the Spirit? And all good Lutherans in unison said? <laughs> yeah, baptism, right? Um, And traditionally, that is absolutely uh, how we have taken this: that he's talking about the the promises and the gift of God that are are going to be coming, going to be instituted, um, going to be commanded by Christ for His church to know in baptism. Uh, But there is also a second interpretation, if uh, from the theological, I guess mindset, if you hold a believer's baptism, which is when you say you must say, "I now choose to be baptized in in order for that baptism to be valid." I want to be clear that is not the Lutheran position. Um, That is not even the position of the historical church. That is a post-Reformation thing. But this would be um, Baptist, uh, Methodist, and some other groups where you have to choose to be baptized. Uh, They actually interpret this in a second way. And I had never really thought about it like this until I did research for this class. Does anyone know what they think this is referring to? No, so they actually think that spirit... The born again of spirit is baptism, but being again born again of water um, is your natural birth. They think he's referring to ambiotic fluid. Now, I would say I don't hold that position. The Lutheran Church has not held that position. Um, I think it's baptism. But it, it's interesting. I was, I'd never really heard of this before, and I asked Pastor Thomas, have you ever heard of this? And he actually said that when he was in high school, he knew someone, was friends with someone uh, who was going to a Baptist church, and they actually talked about that. He still remembers that conversation, that at that Baptist church, they taught that that water birth was your natural birth, but then the baptismal birth that you choose or elect is uh, the spiritual birth, and that's what Jesus is talking about. We would say that, no, this is, this is baptism. This is what Jesus promises to bring to his people, what God promises to bring to his people in baptism. Um, and you see very clearly, as we go throughout this, that that baptism and faith are tied together throughout the Gospel of John, throughout how Jesus talks about baptism. And I think what's troubling for some is what does he say cannot happen unless one is baptized? Cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that mean, and this is, of course, where you get the, there's a pretty obvious example where I'm going to detract from this, Uh, Does that mean that if one is not baptized, they may not be saved, ever? No. What's what's the prime example that refutes that? Thief on the cross. Exactly. Um, What does it mean then? It does mean that baptism should be a regular, a normal part of a Christian's life. That baptism is something that a Christian has given to them. It's a gift. God gives, gives to them. Luther would say it like this in the Catechism, that baptism is necessary, but not absolutely necessary. That's such a Luther thing to do, to, to get out of it. You know, use an ultimatum, and then counter out the ultimatum. You know, make it seem like it's a black or white thing, but actually it's gray. Um, and so, when we, we read these verses, you know, it's something that we have to just remember in our minds, that baptism is nothing short of the extraordinary gift of God's Love and grace, the pouring out of the Spirit and the combination of the water and the Word, it brings the the gift of faith into our lives. Um, It is necessary as a Christian, but not absolutely necessary. Then going on to verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. I think the next verse, right here, verse 6, actually counteracts that... um, Statement I said before, that some hold this to be the first birth of water being natural birth. Because how does he refer to natural birth here in the next verse? Of flesh. Yeah, Jesus refers to the natural birth as one of of flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, this is where it really starts to get interesting. So far, Nicodemus has done his niceties, asked a pretty reasonable question when presented with Jesus' statement that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But now, Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again, for the wind blows where it wishes. Now, Uh, Some of you may know this, but what's the word for spirit right above? There's enough clergy, I think, in this congregation. Wind, yes. Pneuma. It's the same word for wind in verse 8. So you could just as easily read this. The spirit blows where it wishes, or goes where it wishes, essentially, and you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In, in both cases there, in verse 8, in the word Spirit, um, in verse 6, above it, in verse 5, and uh, it's all the same word that is now translated as wind. And this is where those tough translational choices have to get made. I'm, I don't envy the folks who are on translation committees for you know, a new version, a new translation of the Greek or the Hebrew, because why do you think they went with wind here instead of spirit? Okay, it says you can hear it. All right. Yeah, it has no physical form that limits it. yeah it's spells a so the one down below in verse eight spelled with a, a capital letter saying that it, this is a proper noun right um, it's actually the the reason why the translation becomes so difficult difficult is the verb blows because wind blows the, it, what we we refer to the same we say that now the wind blew hard today right as the wind blows, the leaves go flying all over the yard. It was the same thing in Greek the verb references how the wind moves. But again, I think Jesus is actually saying both things, right? He's using something that they would be able to conceptualize, that Nicodemus would have been able to conceptualize. But I don't want to discount too much that he's not referring to the Spirit here. Because everything else in John 3 is talking about the Spirit, when we get pneuma, the the Greek word for this. And so I think you could read it uh, either as the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, or essentially, the spirit blows or goes, essentially it goes out where it wishes, and you hear the spirit's sound. Now that's something to consider. How is the Holy Spirit heard? In the word: what stands before Nicodemus? The word made flesh. What is Nicodemus struggling to understand? The word? In every sense, the the scriptures as they are written, the word made flesh right there before him, the words of the word made flesh that are coming out from Jesus. Nicodemus can't understand what's going on. Yeah. Yes. Yes, where it wishes. You're exactly right. Now I will say, we do this again, remember in English, we do the same thing, right? I mean, that's why it actually reads very fine in English to tr- basically be a very wooden translation of the Greek, to say, "The wind blows wherever." Um, so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. What is Jesus actually saying here to Nicodemus? What did the Pharisees pride so heavily? They felt they could do it themselves. They had it all designed, they had the system, they had the regulations, they had the rules, they had um, the procedures in place in order to do it themselves. What's another name for being able to do it all yourself? Oh, pride, yes. Being in control. When you're in total control of something, You can do it yourself. You understand how it works. You understand how it operates. You understand where it's going. It's self-sufficient. Yeah. In a lot of ways, the the whole mindset of of the Pharisees is that we have got it figured out. We are in control. We can control what we need to do in order to follow God and understand what God desires us to do. So when you read verse 8, what is Jesus actually reminding Nicodemus Yeah, Nicodemus, this is not in your control. This is not in your control. And so then Nicodemus asked him, and I think this verse is the crux of this whole discussion, this whole dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus asked Jesus, how can these things be? Oh, yeah, we'll get to that in just a moment. I think I said 11 when I meant 9. We're at verse 9 with Nicodemus' question. Um, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? How is this working? How is this operating? How in the world are you saying these things? I see what you're doing. I don't get it. How can these things be? And so then Jesus answers him, Uh, And Jesus had a sense of humor. I love responses like this because, you know, he kind of wraps up those who are trying to question him in their own questions or in their own positions or their own statuses. You know, it's like the rich young ruler. He knew that he was so prideful that he thought he was following all the commandments of God. He knew that, so he he builds them up. Well, if you've done all that, then just sell what you have and give to the poor. And the man walks away brokenhearted, (laughs) right? Uh, This is another one of those. Jesus answers Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet, you do not understand these things? Here you are, who is so highly esteemed for your your teaching ability and your understanding. You come to me and call me teacher to kind of maybe give me a little flattery here. I I speak to the heart of of your question without you even asking it. Are you not a teacher of Israel who could understand what's at work here? Uh, And then he says, and this is what you, you brought up, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So now, as was already mentioned, one of the options for understanding the we here is it's speaking from a, a Trinitarian perspective. I mean, I don't think that's a bad option. I think that there's a lot of, um, a lot of validity to that it could be exactly what Jesus is doing. But the theme of John 3, in my mind, is Jesus is doing both of these things. Uh, so, throughout John 3, there's going to be several times where, where commentators will debate did Jesus mean this or that? I, I'm going to be honest, I think the whole time he, he's meaning both. And this is another one of those. Who else might he be aligning himself with? Um, so, think about who spoke the word of God to God's people in the past the prophets, to Abraham, to Moses. to to Isaiah, to Jeremiah. Um, And so the two main, again, viewpoints here is, one, could it be Trinitarian? I think absolutely it could be. Just like in Genesis, where we read God say, let us make man in our image, right? But I also think there's an element to this, is this is him uh, saying, these words are nothing new. God's promise to bring a Messiah is nothing new for God's people. In fact, the prophets spoke to it quite frequently. When you get to Good Friday, what words do you think of from the Old Testament? Isaiah, right? When we even are in the Advent season, as we uh, are in our own season of preparation before Christmas, where do most of the anticipatory um, pericopes or verses that are read during the service, where do most of those come from? Isaiah or the other prophets? You know, Malachi uh, and the like. So I think both could be true. I think Jesus could be saying, we in the Trinitarian sense, but also saying that this is not a new sort of thing that you're hearing. You're acting like you you have no understanding, you've never heard anything like this before, but this is simply aligning with what the Word of God has been speaking to the, the hearts of God's people for centuries, millennia, before this. And it's why, I think, right after it, he says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, thus far, you might be wondering, well, what earthly things has he even talked about? It seems like he's discussing kind of heavenly things most of the way. And for this, again, we have to go back. Sometimes with our chapter and verse divisions, we forget that this is not to be intended to be read just John 3 by itself. If you go back to John chapter 2 again and go back to that cleansing at the temple, what words that deal with earthly things does Jesus say that the people struggle to understand? Yes. They, they say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? He says, Oh, destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said to him, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it in three days. But he was t- speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Nicodemus is coming immediately off that event here. Nicodemus was likely one of those who either heard about this, this event in the temple, or heard about and experienced the events immediately following that that we read at the start of this Bible study at the end of John chapter two. Jesus is showing him heaven or er, sorry, earthly things happening right there in front of him. And can Nicodemus understand what it's all about? No. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Very clearly, who is Jesus talking about in that verse? Himself. Exactly right. He is talking about himself. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man may be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, not to put you on the spot, but what was the situation in which Moses had to uh, Cast a bronze serpent in the wilderness. What was going on? Okay, the fiery sermon, ser, uh, sermons. The fiery sermons. The fiery sermons were really getting to the people. No, the fiery serpents. Yeah, the poisonous snakes were biting people and killing them, right? Because of their disobedience. I think Ruth, you see where I'm going with this here. Now, what makes sense? about a bronze serpent healing venom. I mean, we've got doctors in this room. Uh, How medically sound is that advice? Bit by a rattlesnake? Look at a statue. So how were the people healed? Through the work of God. That the people were healed through the work of God for the... The venomous bites that poisoned the, their very blood. Now, here's where I think John 3, and I said this at the beginning, I think it's so profound. So, what does it mean that the Son of Man gets lifted up in that same way? What poisoned your, your blood? Sin. How did sin get into this world? Through a serpent. How are you healed of the venomous bite that that serpent produces in your life? Through the very fact that the Son of Man was lifted up in the same exact manner. That so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That means just like this, the Son of Man must be lifted up for the salvation of, of God's people that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus, you are dying and you don't even realize it. Or maybe he might have been an older man, maybe he realized he was getting to the end, but but ultimately all of us have a deadly venom running through our blood, running through our hearts, running through our minds. And just like in, in the wilderness when the people looked up at the bronze serpent, it was God who was the one who was healing. It wasn't a medical breakthrough. It wasn't a treatment plan. It wasn't finally figuring out how not to get the snake to bite you. But it was through relying on God that healing was brought into their life. Yes, Ruth. I think Jesus makes that illusion, at least here. And remember, Nicodemus is well-learned in the Scriptures. And it is the same word in Hebrew. I, I did double-check that. That word for fiery serpent and the word for serpent in Genesis 3, same word. I think it is at least a strong allusion to the two things being connected. Because remember, Nicodemus doesn't even know what it means that the Son of Man is going to be lifted up, just like that bronze serpent. Right? Nicodemus, at this point, has no clue how literal Jesus is being. This all seems kind of weird. The 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 born again part, the questioning of what it means that um, someone believes in the Son of Man who is lifted up like the bronze serpent and has eternal life. None of this would make sense initially. Is only we have the benefit of hindsight. But you imagine Nicodemus that night standing, you know, sitting or, or standing in front of Jesus, and he was confused out of his mind. That's why he asked that question in verse 9, how can these things be? That's why I think that's the actual crux of this entire dialogue, is that is the question that John is wanting his readers to ask. How is it that this account of Jesus of Nazareth results in what we say it results in at the end? How is that even possible? You know, and and so when he uses the serpent as the analogy, he's saying it's going to be like you'll need to look upon him just like you had to look upon that serpent. So thus far, what has Jesus answered from Nicodemus? Kind of what he's coming to do, right? It's the what of God's plan of salvation. That he's sending his son to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and rise again. Yep. Yeah. Mm hmm. Oh, yeah. Yes. 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 So very astutely, but the, the, what does Nicodemus initially start asking about? What well, about all these signs? He's seeing all these signs. And Jesus answers with what the final sign, um, and, or one of the final signs, I would say. You can never separate the death and resurrection. We, we have to be careful in how we discuss that. I think sometimes we can too easily say, Jesus died for the forgiveness of my sins. No, he died and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins. Well, we're not sure. We don't know. We're going to talk about the other couple spots Nicodemus appears. But he definitely saw this sign because of what we're going to cover right at the end here today with, with John chapter 19 and the last time we read of Nicodemus. Um, so, so far, Jesus has answered the what? Now, what's the natural? Oh, yeah, Dave. Yeah. Well, and and you'll notice here um, that Jesus just talks about terms of salvation and eternal life. Um, We don't quite get into that directly just yet. He mentioned the thing about the temple of his body in chapter 2, but this he's just focused so far on uh, what what am I coming to do? What am I here for? Uh, What will I do? So I think that's jumping ahead just a smidge. We've got a whole six months to get through John. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to cause it, because Jesus addresses it more directly later. Um, at this point in this dialogue, he's just explaining to Nicodemus what's on Nicodemus's heart at the moment. Um, all right, so now we get to that verse. Oh, wait, oh, we're, you guys don't want to get to John 3.16. I thought we were going to jump right there. You keep having uh, regard, life, the Oh, just wait. Wait four verses. If you can wait four verses... I think Jesus says something so convicting that it actually changes Nicodemus' life. Um, but if you, wait, you have to wait four verses. You guys all want the dessert before we get to the, the meal. All right. Oh, Dennis. <laughs> now you're just trying to have fun with me. So, not to jump into the total weeds here, but I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll try to step over the, the weeds of this for just a moment. So the question was brought, um, is it only, for example, the thief on the cross that we hang our hat on this idea of it's necessary but not absolutely necessary? Uh, there's other aspects, other verses that speak to baptism and faith saving you. And what does not save you? Not believing. Right? Um, yeah, the Great Commission is another good example, but, and that's in the long ending of Mark, which is why I said this is the weeds, because if any of you are in Veltz's class at any point at this church, you know he does not hold to the long ending to Mark, so we're not going to get into that at the moment. Um, and that's a whole other discussion for another day. But the long ending to Mark uh, does have those... Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. And I think how we can think about it actually does come a little bit later in verse, I think it's 18... Um, let me see. Yes, in verse 18. So, again, if we give, give me... No, it's, it's only three more verses. Bud has to wait four, you have to wait three. Um, all right, so can we go to John 3.16 now? All right, so Jesus has addressed the what. What, then, does John 3.16 serve as? The why. It essentially answers this question... Why does God act in this way? And if your Bible's like mine, how many of you, show of hands, your Bible sections this off with, a, with a, a special bold thing that says, for God so loved the world. I think a lot of our Bibles do that. Why? Because it is so well known. It is the gospel in a nutshell. Uh, it is rightfully beloved by the church across the world, by you and I personally. But this is part of that dialogue. This is a continuation of what has just been said. And so we have Jesus addressing the what, and now we get to the why. Why would God do this? Uh, And another example as to why I know this is connected to the first part is it begins with the conjunction. If any of you were English teachers, you know what's a conjunction do? What's its function? Conjunction, junction, what's your... It connects two things, yeah. That's why it starts with the, the Greek word gar, or for, as it's translated... For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Those well loved words you've heard probably a thousand times, seen at football games in the back of the end zone as they're kicking the extra point, right? Um, That is addressing the why God is going to do what he is going to do through Jesus. It answers Nicodemus's question from John chapter 9 or chapter 3 verse 9 I should say because at the end of the day when you hear the what it's bizarre when you hear the what that that God's going to send his son of man to be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness that the the spirit of God goes where it pleases without um, control that Jesus says you must be born again all those questions leave us asking, but why? How is it that these are the ways God is going to work? And how that is, is because of his love for you. Because of his love for the world. Um, in fact, in the, in the Greek, more woodenly, and I'll get you in just a second, Randy, more woodenly, it, it's kind of, God loved the world specifically in this way. That he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Um, In a lot of ways, this summarizes the nature of God's love in its entirety. He loves the world so much that in this specific way, he sent his one and only son to do this for the world. All right, Randy. Yeah. Yes, yes, that the, the Messiah has come. Yeah. And that's caused some debate. There are some people who wonder if this has maybe been... Um, that John included this after, which is why it's sectioned off in a lot of our Bibles. But I think it is exactly what you said, Randy, that it's talking about the Son of God. He's here. He's in front of you, Nicodemus. Uh, And again, Nicodemus doesn't totally understand what that means just yet, but he's going to see it. And and I think when you look at John 3, verse 3, uh, where he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What must Nicodemus truly Have happened in order to gaze upon Jesus on the cross and see that as the salvation for his sin. The Spirit has to move in him, right? That the Spirit has to get to work, and he does, as we'll we'll see at the end of this. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. Him. Now, I think this is such a, an excellent reminder of our station in life, so to speak. Um, and I'll include verse 18 with this, so we can get into what you, you had mentioned, uh, Dennis. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. These verses right after John three sixteen, paint the portrait of a God who's not going around the world looking for people to condemn. I think that's what so often those outside the church see God as. Oh, you're just trying to go around and, and tell me how bad I am. God is not going throughout this world. Jesus doesn't go throughout this, uh, his ministry looking for people to condemn, but rather looking for people to save. His goal is not to condemn but to save those who are already condemned in their sin. His goal is not to to be breaking news, you don't do things so well. But his goal is to say, you know you don't do it so well, but my salvation is for you. And there's a subtle difference there because what it does is it changes the starting line. As we go out in this world, it's not a neutral slate. When you say, um, if you look at John 3.16 by itself, it kind of seems like it's a neutral slate. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life and not perish, and transferably, whoever does not believe in him, what is condemned. But what Jesus is actually saying is, you're already condemned, but God came to save you. You already have the stain of sin, but God came to forgive you. And how did God come to forgive you? By loving the world so much that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's why I think when we just take John 3.16 by itself, we we fail to realize the true depth of everything going on in these few verses here in John chapter 3. That God's going to accomplish however he chooses. Even sacrificing his own son to bring salvation to the world. Uh, And this is the judgment. Oh, and I got to answer Dennis's question. Sorry. Why I thought this addresses Dennis's question. Um, It's not just the thief on the cross. We see very clearly that it's faith that brings, um, that the Holy Spirit brings faith into our, our life. But the reason why we say baptism is. Necessary is what state do we live in by nature? A condemned state. We are not by our own nature righteous. And so, why is that promise of water necessary? Water in the Word necessary? We need to be saved. Um, What does baptism bring into our hearts? Faith. What do we need to do in order to have eternal life and not perish? Believe in the name of Jesus and the power of his salvation, forgiveness for us. Faith. Um, and so faith is ultimately what saves. Where does God promise to instill faith in our hearts? The waters of baptism. And when Jesus commands things, it's usually a good idea to do it, Right? And he commands us to go and baptize. That was the great commission you brought up, Ruth. That's not an optional thing. You know? It's as important as any of the commandments, as important as any of the instructions Jesus gives his disciples to love one another. Going and baptizing is just as important as anything else God has commanded us to do. And when he commands us to do things, why does he usually command us to do it? Because it's, because it's good for us. For our blessing. It's, it's so that we um, would receive his gifts in our life. So I don't know if that helped answer your question, Dennis, but sort of? Okay, I'll take sort of. Well, baptism brings faith into our... Okay. <laughs> so so I will I will refer back to John 3. Who's in control of the salvation of the people of this world? God and not us. And I think we have to be careful not to turn it into, well, it becomes almost like an um, ex-officio act. I've done it, check the box, and now we're done. Baptism is not a box to check. It is a gift that is given to us. All right, so we, I'll go um, Paul, and then Carla, and then Ruth. Yes. Yeah. And that's where John 3 kind of answers this. Yes? Yep. And not of yourself, so that no one uh, may boast. Not of your works. None of us can sit here saying, I am a Christian because I am so good at singing, or reading the Bible, or praying, right? All right, Ruth? Ruth? Yeah, baptism connects us directly to Christ, the Word made flesh. Whether, in a way, whether or not the parent, you pray, you do pray. The parents will instruct them in in the Word, right? But let's just say that doesn't happen. They're still connected to the Word, literally the Word made flesh in Christ because baptism is water combined with God's Word. Yes, yes, yes. Um, 100%. So, uh, where were we at? We were at verse 19. And then this answers Bud's question. And I think I I maybe made peace with everyone who had a question earlier. Uh, And this judgment, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Where is the love of people left to its own devices centered in? Evil. Where is the works of God's love, when left to its own nature, centered in? Good. And this is that juxtaposition you were talking about, um, Bud, of, of light and darkness. And I think Jesus, at the end of this, convicts Nicodemus using that very same thing, um, because they loved, the, or they loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What did Nicodemus not want anyone to know? That he was coming to Jesus. He kept it hidden under the cover of darkness. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. What was Nicodemus afraid of? It will come out that I visited with Jesus. It's going to get out there unless I come under the cloak of darkness. What is Nicodemus struggling with? It's the idol of his heart, his entire way of life, his entire existence, everything he has learned, everything he has taught points to one thing, and now God is saying something different, and it's really hard to let that thing go. We're talking friends, we're talking family, social status, wealth, respect in the community, his position of authority. This meeting gets out there, It's all on the table. So I'm going to go under the cover of night. And what does Jesus do when Nicodemus comes to him? He speaks to what's really at the heart of what Nicodemus is struggling at. From the very start of John 3, that's what Jesus is doing bit by bit by bit by bit, speaking to the heart of what is the deepest struggle in Nicodemus' life at that moment. Hmm? He did, yes, and that's the tension, right? He did not reject, like, like, you'll see, we're going to get to, if we have time, chapter 7 and 19, he did not, in chapter 7, he does not reject Jesus the way the other Pharisees do. But he's struggling with it right now. Yeah. Yeah. So you're 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 saying something that Jesus already told Nicodemus. Who's in control? Jesus is. Yeah. You, whose whole system of life was set up on trying to control your salvation in the eyes of God, you are not in control. Yeah. That's why that question I think is the really the crux of this whole dialogue is how can these things be? How is it this way? Because everything that I thought I knew, everything the world is telling me, everything around me does not point to this making sense. How can these things be? And then we read that whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be seen clearly that his works have been carried out by God. Um, That having been carried out could also be seen as that his works have been accomplished by God. Who accomplished the good works for the Pharisees? They did. It was almost um, entirely pull yourself up by the bootstraps and maintain the law. What is Jesus saying here? Who is accomplishing the work? God. And so Nicodemus, in a way, has a a choice, one of two options, right? You're either going to hide in the darkness, lest your works be known, or it's going to be seen clearly that what is being done for you, what you do, is accomplished by God. So now... Um, let's turn ahead because we do have a couple minutes. Uh, John seven verse, I think it's forty-five. This is the second instance we read of Nicodemus, and then we're going to go to nineteen, uh, verse thirty-nine as well. So there is a division among the people, uh, and the Pharisees send officers in order to arrest Jesus. And when they hear what Jesus has to say, they go, "This seems different." I don't feel so good about arresting him. And They go back to the Pharisees, and we'll cover this in depth when we get to John 7, so that's why I'm just giving you the cliff notes right now. And so the Pharisees say, why didn't you arrest him? And what is Nicodemus' response in uh, chapter 7, verse 50? Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Nicodemus says, I, we haven't even seen what he is going to do yet. In a way, Jesus throws down the gauntlet and says, I'm going to do my stuff clearly. You may come to me at night. You may even do things under the cover of darkness. But what I am going to do, just like that serpent was high and lifted up, I'm going to do something clearly. And so Nicodemus here in John 7 is at least a, uh, oh, let's give him a shot in his faith sort of place. I don't want to say completely there's a full conversion yet, though we don't totally know um, and kind of said, you know, why don't, we, why don't we at least see him out? See what happens here. And then we get to John 19. And in John 19, what has already taken place? John 19, verse 39, the crucifixion has already taken place. Nicodemus, whether he heard it, or saw it himself as at least been made aware on Good uh, Friday that Jesus has been crucified, has been literally lifted up. And we see Nicodemus do what for Jesus? Prepared spices, a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight. Look, if you have the Lutheran Study Bible, what does it say that sort of amount of spices is, is appropriate for? At the footnote. A royal burial. It's so. I think Nicodemus is one of the most fascinating individuals in the entire New Testament, because we only read about him three times. But we see three profound experiences in his life. You see him ask the initial question of, I don't get this, help me out here. You see him start to question everything he thought he knew in John chapter 7. Start to question everything that he um, had had built his life around. And by the time of the crucifixion, we see him ready to anoint Jesus as a king. Uh, I think it is... Pretty profound that you, we get this whole chapter of John, not just John 3:16. John 3:16 is great. Don't get me wrong. But when you think about this whole dialogue, it is so rich in, in, in what it addresses in our own human condition. It addresses who is actually in control of our salvation. It addresses who is actually at work when it comes to saving us, Who's the one doing the work? It addresses how can it possibly be that way. That's in the the greatness of God's love that his only son was sent. Um, And it also addresses how it is that it's going to be that way. That the the salvation, the healing of God's people would come from the Son of Man being lifted up on a cross, giving his life for the world so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Um, And so my encouragement to you, is next time you hear someone mention John 3.16, ask them to read the rest of John 3. Because I think it's even cooler to think about John 3.16 when you see the full context of the conversation. We've got three minutes. Are there any quick questions, comments, quips? Yeah, Randy. Well, yeah, so I think that question, right, Think about how many times Nicodemus had to ask that question throughout those three years. How can this be? All right, after this dialogue, Jesus goes out, Nicodemus keeps doing his things. Then he sees his friends starting to persecute an innocent man. I have to imagine he had to ask, how can this be that these people I thought were so righteous I see behaving in such an unrighteous manner? And then he has to ask, how can it be that those friends killed him, hung him on a cross, How can it be that he was actually speaking literally all that way back, that nighttime conversation? How could it be that he was so honest and truthful in what he meant? But I think it would be really neat to see Nicodemus' reaction when confronted with the the resurrection, because he'd probably be asking one more time. How can this be? He was dead. I buried him. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I didn't even go to Costco for all those spices. um, No, but how can this be? And what what a different reaction that must have been. What a more joyful, how can this be, that must have been when Nicodemus heard that the man he buried, that he anointed with spices, uh, was no longer dead, but was alive again. Um, With all that being said, any other last questions before we close for the day? No? All right. Well, let's close with a word of prayer, uh, and then we'll either get you home or to our 1045 service. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, at times we come before you with that same question that Nicodemus had. How can these things be in our life? And yet in your great love for us, that love that sent your only begotten Son, you have come and saved us from that which uh, poisons our blood, poisons our hearts, poisons our minds and our sin. You have given us forgiveness of sins and the life everlasting in your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray you would keep us encouraged and uplifted in that life and that we would seek to serve you in all we do.